0: Thank you, worship band, for that. We really appreciate you leading us. If you want to open your Bibles or scroll somewhere onto uh, Mark 8, that'll be our primary text, and let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So as you saw on the screen that was up, the... Sermon title today is The Way of Life, which in some ways is ironic because this is a sermon title that was set like months ago. And here we are in the middle of this pandemic where our way of life has been totally disrupted. Uh, And I've noticed just in myself and looking around West Seattle, our city and the congregation that week one is pretty much about, okay, how do I preserve the way of life while I'm waiting for this thing to pass. And then we start to rotate into weeks two and weeks three. And there's real questions about what is our way of life going to be? How long are we doing this? What will our way of life look like on the other side of this? Uh, and, and, and we stock up things for ourselves. I mean, I bought three weeks' worth of bananas. Who buys three weeks' worth of bananas? I mean, that's a stupid fruit. No no offense to the king of potassium, but Shelf life, Lori. Shelf life, bananas. And this is what we do. Now, I've seen on social media, and mind you, social media may not be the best indication of how we're all thinking, but with all these things going around on social media, there's this one post. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a post that says, and they emerged from this time, and then it goes on with this whole aspirational list. And they're lovely things, right? You know, better connected. We've read books. We've cleaned closets we've baked banana bread it's 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 i don't mean to be a downer but i'm not optimistic there's lovely posts but it seems to me that in the midst of massive disruption we actually become masters of distraction i mean let's be honest here there's there's the binge watching netflix there's going down rabbit holes online Uh, there's obsessing on the stock market and this, this, this way of distraction is actually just this cul-de-sac that takes us around in circles and spits us right back out where we started. Now, for others, the way of distraction would be a luxury at this moment because you're on the way of exhaustion. You're, you're not feeling well yourself, or you're working extra hours in stressful situations in health care, or essential services, first responders. You're a parent trying to figure out this blooming homeschool thing. Um, or or you're, you're, you're having one more conversation with your parents that if they leave the house to go to the grocery store again, you're going to get an ankle brace. And, and the same goes for your teenager, right? This is exhausting. What is the way of life in the teeth of COVID-19? For some, a way of life and preserving it isn't even the issue. For some, this is going to develop into a fight for life. One of our elders, Blythe Miggs, mentioned in her devotional that was online this week at Westside, that all of this brings to mind our own mortality. And when questions of our mortality come up, we get afraid and we seek to preserve life. Now, so much that we affirm and we are participating in right alongside our neighbors is absolutely in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's things that Jesus taught us in his early life. It's loving our neighbors well. It's uh, self-limiting on the part of the strong in order to look after the weak. There are things that reflect Jesus' teaching and Jesus' earthly ministry. And several people have encouraged one another with encouragement from Jesus' resurrection, from his victory over death, his victory over disease, his victory over all that harms, his promise of resurrection. But one area where I haven't seen and heard a lot of reflection is an area that seems most essential to not only a way of life, but the way to life, and that's the cross. It's the cross that links Jesus' teaching in his early life, earthly life, and Jesus' resurrection. The way to life is the cross. Do you see this? I mean, you see how essential the cross that we have been talking about the last number of weeks here in Lent is to both following the commands of Jesus' earthly ministry and living into the call of the risen Christ. How essential it is during this time that we don't get so distracted by the way of distraction or the way of exhaustion that we miss the cross. So we're going to learn this morning from two apostles who initially rejected the cross. Both Peter and Paul rejected it out of hand, almost missed it, except that Jesus got in their face. And the first passage is from the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark 8, if you want to get there. Now, the Gospel of Mark, as you may be aware, it's set up in two parts. The first half, we see Jesus emerging on the scene. We see his acts of authority, the authority to forgive, the authority to cast out demons, the authority to heal, and authority over natural disasters, even authority over death, authority in his teaching, and the whole time, this annoying, keep it quiet. And then here, in Mark 8, At the middle of the gospel, Jesus just straight up asks, so, who are people saying I am? And what do the disciples think? And Peter, God bless Peter, he gets it exactly right. God reveals to him, you are the anointed one of God. You are the Messiah. In other words, you are the one sent to make things right. Isn't that what we're longing for? George last week used the word rectification. A noun that acts like a verb, making things right. That's what the Messiah, the Anointed One, is sent to do. And in the most simple terms, what do you have to do to make things right? You gotta fix what's wrong, right? Like injustice, you've gotta fix oppression, you've gotta do something about disease and corruption and hatred. You gotta do something about people who hoard toilet paper and party on the beaches of Miami. Someone's gotta make this right. So it's good news that now we have an anointed one. Now we have someone who can take names and kick down doors and make it right. And then Jesus just straight up blows it. Look at verse 31. This is where we're going to start reading. Listen to the way Mark tells the story. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. Pause on that must. In the literal Greek, what it says, it is necessary. It is necessary for the Son of Man to undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all of this quite openly. Now, this is a problem to making it right. Now, suffering, who knows? The Jewish family has so much suffering that maybe they could roll With the suffering indication. But rejection, rejection is definitely not helpful for God's anointed, especially not rejection by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. I mean, that's the entire religious establishment. They're the good guys. But Jesus goes on with the worst case scenario description of a messianic movement and be killed. So maybe you can forgive Peter and just about everyone else for not feeling like the last part of the teaching and in three days be raised again is really all that helpful. In this series that we're doing on the cross of Christ, George has been reflecting on the story of the cross alongside this wonderful stained glass window gifted to the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, after the bombing in September 1963 that murdered four young black girls. And with the full devastation of that event and the stark poignancy of the stained glass window with the dark skinned Messiah on the cross, it may be easy to miss the odd shape of the figure that's there. Notice how he's not fully fixed to the cross. Notice that he almost seems to be lifting it. There's a bit of a hint of resurrection even here with white clothing and the way the figure moves. Fleming Rutledge has written, in the cruciform position, he seems to be moving off the cross as though he were not captured by it. She makes the point that it it, it almost makes the figure of Jesus available for any crisis at any time as Messiah. There's that slight hint of resurrection the little phrase at the end but there's no question of crucifixion every time Jesus predicts his death he predicts resurrection this this is a wholeness to Jesus earthly life the cross and resurrection you can't break those things apart but Peter's reaction when Jesus first begins to speak openly About his suffering and his rejection and his public execution Peter's reaction is a reaction all the disciples shared listen to the way Mark tells the story picking it up again at verse 32 and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him but turning and looking at his disciples he rebuked Peter and said get behind me Satan For you are setting your mind not on divine things, the things of God, but on human things. Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Now, I think it's fairly safe to say this is probably one of the worst days ever of Peter's friendship with Jesus. And thank goodness for Peter. Pastor Pastor Aaron from here at UPC was preaching at Westside Presbyterian last February on my behalf. And he reminded us how fortunate we are to have Peter, whose public stumbles and failures give the rest of us hope that God can go right on using us. Before partnering on the live stream here at UPRES, We started at Westside our Lenten journey on March March 1st, it seems so long ago, with the story of Jesus in the wilderness. And maybe you remember that while both Matthew and Mark tell the story of Peter being rebuked by Jesus with the words, Get thee behind me, Satan. Matthew lets us hear those words earlier in Jesus' temptation. You remember this point when the devil takes Jesus to the height of the mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and then says to him this can all be yours my man just worship me and jesus says get behind me satan in matthew's storytelling it isn't the first time it is the first time jesus says this and now here in mark 8 when god pulls back the curtain to reveal jesus to his disciples as the messiah and then jesus begins to openly speak about his way, the way of suffering, the way of rejection, the way of being killed, Peter sets down a stumbling block on that path, trying to detour Jesus from the way of God. And it's a detour that is far too similar to the temptation in the wilderness for Jesus to miss it when it shows up the second time in the mouth of his friend and his followers. So this time, Jesus turned to all the disciples. Did you catch that? He turned and looked at all of them when he rebuked Peter. It's like, it's like good old Adam snacking on the fruit right next to Eve. They're all in on this. You are setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. You're not setting your mind on divine things. You're setting your mind on human things. That is the issue. See, when humans choose a route that looks reliable and trustworthy and great to travel along on the way to life, we don't generally enter things like suffering and rejection and public execution in our search bar. We tend to look for security and connection, for joy and acceptance, for peace and health. All good gifts and good blessings, but perhaps they're more of a destination than a route. That's another sermon. The point is, if we cannot save our own lives, we will at least work furiously to save our lifestyles, our way of life. But remember the description in the letter to the Hebrews of Jesus' way to life, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And you have to pause for a minute and ask, wait a minute, wait a minute. The joy set before him, whose joy? Because before Jesus was ever born, he lived with God as God in the presence of God, sharing in the mutual joy of the love between the father to the son and the son to the father. He was already the one in whom all things were created and through whom all things hold together. So what's, what, what greater joy are we talking about? The joy of the Lord, it would seem, is rescuing his beloved from the ravages of evil and disease and death. And the route to that joy, the route to our rescue, to our life, The route moves through the cross. The Son of Man must, it is necessary, to suffer and be rejected and be killed. And that route, the way of the cross to life, is our route as well. You heard Jesus' words, If anyone want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And the introduction of the cross at this point in the story, where before he talked about being killed, this is super sobering. Because as Martin Hengel writes in his work, Crucifixion, people were all too aware of what it meant to bear the cross through the city and then to be nailed to it. The cross isn't simply suffering. The cross is suffering with profound, dehumanizing shame, and helplessness. Rutledge, in her book, has written, Crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose, the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. Origen, one of the earliest theologians in the church, referred to Jesus' death on the cross as the utterly vile death of the cross. Susan Sontag, who suffered for years from the cancer that eventually killed her, wrote this, it is not suffering as such that is most deeply feared, but suffering that degrades. The cross is suffering that degrades. And why? Why is the only route through to life, through the cross, through the suffering that degrades, Now, realistically, we're not answering that in the next few minutes. But there is one of many insights in the scriptures. One insight is here in Mark 8. Look look back down in the passage again. Part of the answer to why the degradation and the shame of the cross has to happen may appear in those final sentences of the passage when Jesus calls everyone standing around him. And remember, these are good people. These are people who have left everything to follow him. And Jesus calls everyone standing around him this adulterous and sinful generation. Which actually nicely sums up how Gen Xers feel about boomers and millennials. Which I'm kidding about, of course. But it's a joke with a point. Because the point is, we pretty much figure our generation, we're not the adulterous and the sinful ones. That's them. That's them. That is the illusion the cross shatters. The illusion that the words and actions and deeds and general condition of the human heart and body and spirit and mind are on the whole fairly wonderful, maybe with a little bit of shame mixed in. When the reality of the shame and the degradation of the Son of Man on the cross reveals us to be entirely corrupted by sin. And this is where actually this current outbreak we're immersed in is a very helpful metaphor there have been numerous stories going around online that are very encouraging of the way christians have responded in previous much more devastating pandemics Um, you must have heard at some point of martin rinkert who in the plague in the 17th century lost thousands of parishioners among them his wife and in the middle of this he wrote the hymn now thank we all our god with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things hath done, in whom our world rejoices. You've maybe seen the, um, uh, the story of 2,000 nurses in Philadelphia during the influenza outbreak in 1918, who volunteered, these Catholic sisters, volunteered to nurse the sick in Philadelphia. They're remarkable stories. But I'll tell you what has caught my imagination where this sermon's concerned about this current outbreak. It's how mild it is. I mean, we've all heard this. We've heard that 80% of those infected will not have serious symptoms. In fact, among those, many of them will not even know they're infected. It'll be completely manageable. And then there are the 20% who expect to fall seriously ill and be fighting and then the devastating smaller percentage, uh, each life of immeasurable value that will succumb to death in this epidemic. And we've seen the importance of testing, we've experienced the frustration of not knowing the spread, We focused on the importance of what we can do with hand washing and sanitizing and and social distancing. Measures that are very important to try to contain the virus. But we cannot make it right. So of course there's fear and frustration. And all of this we are immersed in a daily metaphor for the way scripture describes sin. The prevalence of sin as described in scripture is very much like the spread of a contagion. And unlike this current virus, which will not infect everyone, sin is a 100% infection rate. Sin is presented in a way that infects everyone. And what's so insidious about sin is it works in ways that are so similar to the current virus. The vast majority of the population, by all appearances, seem to barely experience its effects. They find them manageable, easy to live with. We are experts at sin management. And sure, there is that much smaller minority of the population that seem remarkably overrun with the severe effects of sin, either because they are victimized or they are the victimizers. But most of us are fairly certain that if we keep our own hands clean, stay away from those obviously infected people, we won't be part of that category. We are convinced that we are not actually carriers. After all, it's not like we're Joseph Stalin or something. See, when you and I think about sin, we're naturally very much like the asymptomatic carriers of a virus who never imagine that we are so intimately involved with the widespread infection and effects of sin in the world. And then along comes something like the cross, where the Son of God who loves us and gives himself for us displays the devastating reality of sin, of every sin, in every human character, every human carrier, To its full extent, where Jesus fully identifies with those victimized by sin, fully identifies with the victimizers, fully absorbs the thousands and millions of transmissions of human sin in between, well, everybody. At one point, Rutledge relates Primo Levi's words from Auschwitz that testify to the reality and the horror of these connections. When he writes, the just among us felt remorse, shame, and pain for the misdeeds that others and not they had committed and in which they felt involved. Close quote. In a profound way, the cross exposes our own inescapable involvement in the full spectrum of sin and evil in the world. And it's no wonder it was rejected by both Peter and Paul. It's no wonder it was seen as foolishness by the Greeks. But Rutledge's conclusion reminds us the Christian faith glorifies a son of God, a man who was degraded and dehumanized by his fellow human beings as much as it is possible to be, by decree of both church and state, and that he died in a way designed to subject him to utmost contempt And finally, to erase him from human memory. You did it unto me. So, where is the good news? This is where we're reminded of the joy set before him that motivates Jesus' endurance of the cross, because it is finished. All of the shame you've ever carried, all of the shame you've ever caused, All of the shame that no one has yet carried for the things done to you that are unspoken and unpunished. All of this shame Jesus carried on the cross in order to open the way of life for you and for me. The way of life leads through the cross of Jesus and it can be trusted. The Apostle Paul puts it another way. After he rejected a crucified Messiah and he was convinced of his own capacity to set things right. And then Jesus confronted him. Paul wrote Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh I live by faith. In the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Memorize that. This is essential. The life... I live in the flesh with all its weaknesses and all its failures. I live by faith and that by faith is essential because whatever it means when Jesus says, pick up our cross and follow him, it is not our following with our cross that saves us or forgives us or heals us or confronts us or comforts us or takes us home. It is the faithfulness of the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us It is Christ who lives in us, Christ who gives us the Spirit, Christ who guides us, Christ who forgives us, Christ who guards us, Christ who calls us to deny ourselves and take up his life in the power of the Holy Spirit. To carry the cross is to believe that Jesus has taken our suffering and our death. And so there are so many ways that you can reflect, and I encourage you to reflect this week on what it means to follow the way of the cross to life in this time. There are three that came to mind for me. I'll give them to you very quickly. The first one does have to do with our mortality, with actual suffering and death. When my brother Jay was suffering from cancer up to the point of his death early this month, I would repeat Galatians 2.20 in my prayers for him. Jay has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer he who lives, but Christ lives in him. And the life, Jay, lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. The way of life is taken up in the cross of Jesus. And the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit of the cross. It's given from the cross. It's the same Spirit that works life in you and I, here and now, in this flesh with all its wonder and all its weakness and all its exhaustion and all its vulnerability to disease. It's good news for our mortality. Secondly, to carry the cross with Jesus is not simply to suffer or to bear patiently under trials and losses and weakness of life. To be crucified with Christ is to not be ashamed of Jesus and his words in this age or the age to come, as Jesus said in Mark 8. As Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's to fully embrace this good news. Carrying a cross of Jesus is to be totally identified with his life and his teaching. Now, I don't know what God is doing in this time. But I do know that the only way to participate is the way of the cross. So soak yourself in the words of Jesus. Continue to follow and obey the words of Jesus. And then finally, last thing, humility's been our theme for Lent at Westside. And humility is the way of the cross. Remember Jesus, who being in the very form and nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a slave. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When I'm feeling super self-righteous or frustrated or or put upon or scared or annoyed, I repeat Paul's verse. Wait a minute, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The life I, I live in this proud and easily frustrated and easily frightened and easily annoyed flesh, I live it by radical trust in the Son of God who loves me, who gave himself for me. Because here I suppose is the point for the morning. The way of life is the same no matter the circumstances surrounding us. The only way to life is to fully identify ourselves in the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you both this morning and this week to reflect in the presence of Jesus on what that means here and now. To uh, direct our best attention this week to the cross of Jesus Christ, to become a disciple again. Of our crucified Lord let's pray Lord Jesus thank you for your willingness to take on our suffering our weakness our flesh our sin and our death thank you for your power to give to us your life your hope your resurrection your sufficiency in all our weaknesses We pray that today and every day you continue to remind us how you love us and give us the grace to take up our cross and follow you. Amen.